Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, we've gathered to hear Meg Howry, who's written that rare thing, a funny book about ballet with more sister angst than a day with the Kardashians, a book that also happens to be, unlike the Kardashians, smart, insightful, and suspenseful. And she wrote it while wearing toe shoes. Take that, James Patterson. I was, <laughs> it's not true. I was going to tell you racy details about Meg, but those are all available on Facebook. So instead, I thought I'd explain to you why you should buy Meg's book instead of the other books currently on the bestseller list. First of all, Fifty Shades of Grey times three at the top of the list? Really, ladies? <laughs> Take a break. <laughs> and pst, Meg's book has dancer sex. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Okay, so that's tough competition for Crane's Dance, especially since they both cover a lot of the same ground. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln says, Henceforth my life shall be one of rigorous study and devotion. I shall become a master of mind and body, and this mastery shall have but one purpose, ballet. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm kidding. I know how much you all love vampires, but let's explore some other villains for a change, like nasty dance critics. They're evil. <laughs> Girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Meg's book has no umlauts. <laughs> Game of Thrones. King Joffrey is evil. Meg danced with the Joffrey. <laughs> there you have it. The Crane's Dance is definitely the book you want to buy. I am honored and delighted to introduce Meg Howery. Every author should have Chris Lynch as an amuse-bouche, <laughs> but only I get her. Um, yeah, it's funny, with the um, when I started writing this book, um, one of the th thoughts was, well, ballet, world of ballet, does anybody care about that? And then Black Swan came out, and 500 million people went to see that movie. <laughs> And then this month, there's a documentary uh, about dance competition. There's a TV show coming to ABC Family, I'm told, called Bunheads. We can all look forward to that. And, um, and then a, a dance competition show on the CW. So uh, ballet dancers, new vampires. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the book. Uh, I did. Um, I did think, I, I try not to think too much about potential imaginary readers while writing, but it, it was sort of an issue of, okay, 
if I'm setting a book in the ballet world with ballet dancers, I'm going to have to probably talk about ballet at some point. <laughs> and how am I going to do that? And uh, But the, it was actually, it turned out to be much more fun than I thought, uh, because the voice of my character really sort of took hold. And um, she starts the book kind of in crisis. She has uh, an injury. Uh, she just broke up with her boyfriend. And her sister has had a complete and total nervous breakdown, who's also a dancer, her sister. So... Uh, so instead of being able to approach her work with the proper amount of reverence and awe that ballet requires, uh, she's, she's cracking up a little bit and doesn't know why she's doing what she's doing any more than anyone else does. Uh, so this, uh, this uh, inability that she, that she's, this thing that she's struggling with to, uh, to, to be back in love with what she, the only thing she knows how to do is one of the th themes of the book. But to give you an introduction to how Kate talks about ballet, I will uh, have Kate talk about ballet. Uh, she addresses throughout the book a sort of uh, invisible movie audience, which is her judge and jury, and explains things to this audience. And so this is her describing uh, a ballet that she just injured herself while doing. It occurs to me that maybe you don't know what Swan Lake is all about. Maybe you've never seen Swan Lake. Maybe you've seen it and still don't really know what happened because you dropped your program under the seat in front of you and didn't want to scramble around for it in an ungainly fashion. Swan Lake, like all the major classical ballets, really needs program notes because otherwise you have to follow the plot points in ballet mime, and God knows those are truly undecipherable. <laughs> so yes, the synopsis might be in order, and if you know it already, you can just nap for a bit. Most productions of Swan Lake don't vary all that much from one another. It's not like Shakespeare where you can reset the whole thing in World War II or a Mexican brothel or something. <laughs> Sometimes an artistic director might change a few things or restage certain sections, like Marius, our current artistic director, added a prelude to our version. The curtain rises on a nearly empty stage with a backdrop of a lake and some boulders stage left leading up to a cave. Enter a young girl. She dances dreamily by herself and all seems peaceful enough until suddenly a shadowy sort of caped figure emerges from the cave. It is the evil magician von Rothbart. We know he's ma a magician because he's got the cape and that he's evil because underneath the cape his costume is this demonic rubbery sort of thing that Roger refers to as mein von Goblin wear. <laughs> Von Rothbart makes some gestures and a fog starts rolling in and darkness descends. The girl appears to lose her way in the mist. Von Rothbart slithers down from his boulders and lures the girl into his arms. He swirls his cape around her, turns and walks upstage, the cape billowing out in such a way that the girl is able to slip into the hydraulic trap and be replaced with another girl, this one in full swan regalia. This is Odette, the ballerina will watch for the rest of the evening. The other one was a girl with a wig on to match the hair color of whoever is dancing Odette that night. It's the old switch be amazed by this bit of stage magic. Okay, it's not like we can pull anything off with CGI. <laughs> so von Rothbart reveals this magically changed creature and she beats her arms and tries to run away, but von Rothbart is able to control her and using more of his dastardly powers, he summons onto stage two rows of women in white swan tutus who form a V and beat their arms in unison as the evil magician stands triumphant with the stricken Odette pressed against his von Goblin wear. <laughs> Lights fall, curtain, end of prelude. The program notes will tell you that the evil magician has placed all these poor women under a curse and that they are condemned to be swans by day and women by night. Von Rothbart's 
personal motivations for such malevolent, malevolent behavior are not explained. You're at the ballet, deal with it. <laughs> Act one opens in the village green of an unspecified, vaguely German realm. We're a little hazy on the time period, too. It's days of yore, I guess, in the yore when everyone in pseudo-Germany wandered around their village green in nearly identical outfits. <laughs> Ours have a slightly rena Renaissance fair vibe to them, which I think is a mistake. The sleeves are too puffy and give all the girls man shoulders. <laughs> anyway, a village green scene is standard issue for classical ballet, and if you've seen one circlet of peasant dancing hoo-ha, you've seen them all. There's a garland dance and a maypole and a lot of people standing around fake clapping or pointing out to each other that other people are dancing in the middle of the stage. This kind of random milling about drives me nuts, but honestly, there just aren't a lot of options. We can't pretend like we're talking to each other because that would be weird and anti-ballet. We don't have props or activities like you see in plays or the opera that would take up stage space. So everyone just wanders around greeting each other with head nods if you're a girl and shoulder thumping if you're a guy, and then one person will indicate center stage like, hey, did you see there are people dancing? Isn't that neat? And the other person will make a gesture like, yes, dancing, it is happening there. <laughs> So here we are in the village green of wherever, filled with people who like to greet each other maniacally every 10 seconds, and then in walks Prince Siegfried, prince of the realm of wherever. Uh, Siegfried is greeted by his best buddy, Ivor. Sometimes he has a different name, and sometimes he's like a court jester, but in our version, he's Ivor, friend to the prince. Ivor gets the prince interested in some of these wonderful maypole hijinks, and Prince Siegfried dances a solo where he expresses, much jumping, his desire to find true love. Then we have the appearance of the prince's mother, the queen. Lots of fanfare and aggressive pointing by all the villagers. Look, it's the queen. Hey, did you see? The queen. She's usually played by some old-timer, a ballet mistress, or a teacher. Galina Sukhanova is our queen and possesses a whole repertoire of animatronic facial expressions. It's a frightening thing up close, but good for those who can only afford seats in the top tiers. The queen reminds Siegfried with some incomprehensible ballet mime that tomorrow is his 21st birthday and he's got obligations like choosing a bride and getting married. The prince sulks a bit at this and makes the gesture for true love, one hand to the breast, the other held aloft with the first two fingers extended. You're going to want to get your program uh, for the explanatory notes on this action because otherwise you might think that Siegfried is responding by trying to hail a cab or test current <laughs> wind, wind conditions. <laughs> Siegfried cheers up when the queen presents him with a nifty-looking crossbow as a birthday present. Siegfried really loves his crossbow. He runs around stage with it, showing to it to everybody stage left, and then stage right, and then stage left again, just in case anybody stage left had their eyes closed, basically eating up some music. Siegfried uh, indicates to Ivor that he wants to go hunting right now, and Ivor indicates that night is falling and now's not a great time for him. Siegfried impulsively decides to go anyway, and Ivor reluctantly follows him end of act one. Act two finds the prince by the same mysterious lake we saw in the prelude. He sends Ivor off and dances around in a melancholy sort of way with his crossbow. Then the prince suddenly sees something off stage that at first confuses and then terrifies him. After peering around his hand and then holding it up like, oh god, no, Siegfried hightails it off stage right, enter the swan corps. This moment is actually very beautiful. One girl after another snakes onto the stage doing the same pattern of steps until all 24 girls are on and then they form rows and there's something powerful and strange and well, wonderful about it. The symmetry, the music, everyone alike and in unison and it's serious, private in a way because the dancers are not smiling at the audience or acknowledging them or even each other at all. And it does feel like a spell, a little. 
It's hammered into you from the first rehearsal. Dance every step at your highest individual level while still maintaining integrity with the group. And this works. You dance your fool head off, no matter what you feel like. No matter if you're in the back row, you can't help it. And when everyone lands from a jump, you can hear it because it's 24 pairs of feet and point shoes. And when you're on stage, you feel connected by that sound, by your position in line. Where are we? Oh, yes. Well, uh, after the swan corps dances, Siegfried gets his balls back and comes running on stage to take a closer look at these creatures. And that's when Odette, now queen of the swans, appears. And Siegfried is all, who's that? But Odette is elusive and runs off stage and, and then comes back in and stands bra bravely in front of all the swans like, don't you dare point that ridiculous crossbow at my girls. So Siegfried puts down his bow and tries to get Odette to dance with him. She's shy and otherworldly and beautiful and of course he falls in love with her. They dance and the core dances and the big swan dance and the little swans do that linked arm thing you were familiar with and Odette dances and Siegfried dances and they dance together again and Odette explains the whole curse thing and ballet mime obfuscated even more than usual by the fact that whoever is dancing Odette is totally exhausted by that point. <laughs> the deal with the curse is that it can be broken by true love, but if true love is promised and then betrayed, the swans will lose their human souls forever and only be birds. You might think this would be a relief, that there would be at least one member of the flock who was sick of being divided in two like that and willing to forego humanity for the quiet life, but I guess we all cling to sanity no matter how painful it is. We cling to humanity, I mean, not sanity. <laughs> Although you can cling to sanity. It's a matter of willpower. Back to the lake. Smitten, Prince Siegfried has almost managed to overcome Odette's objections and is about to promise true love when evil von Rothbart appears. Boo! Siegfried grabs his crossbow and aims for von Rothbart, but dawn is breaking and Odette is back under the magician's power, so she stands in front of him. The prince, unable to get a clear shot, vows to return the next night and free Odette. End of Act 2, intermission. The mezzanine bathroom is going to be pretty full, so I'd try the second balcony one if I were you. Step outside, have a cigarette on me, and then come on back. <laughs> Act three is the prince's birthday ball. Four princesses arrive and are brought in to meet Siegfried, who's totally not into them, although he condescends to dance a little with each one. The queen takes Siegfried aside to ask who he's going to choose to propose to, and Siegfried looks bummed about the selection, when suddenly a new guest arrives, a mysterious stranger wearing a mask and a cape, von Rothbart in disguise. And with him, he has a beautiful woman who looks exactly like Odette. Instead of wearing, instead of wearing all white, she's wearing all black. This is Odile, the black swan. The program notes will tell you she is von Rothbart's daughter, magicked up to look like Odette in order to trick the prince. Odette and Odile are always danced by the same ballerina. It's why the role is so difficult. Not because you have to be lyrical and romantic and vulnerable as the white swan and fiery and uber strong and confident as the black one. Oh, there's an umlaut there. Um, <laughs> That's not a huge problem. You get a different costume and a different choreography and tempi, and these are really all you need to change your personality when you're a dancer. We do it several times a day. The hard part in dancing Odette Odile is the stamina and concentration involved. Anyway, the prince is immediately taken with this fabulous Odile, and since she looks exactly like Odette, he convinces himself that she is Odette, even though she's got a totally different personality. <laughs> There's a lot of bravura dancing, and dazzled by the pyrotechnic, Siegfried pledges true, lo 
true love to the black swan. Once Siegfried has done this, von Rothbart throws off his cape, reveals mein von Goblinware, and claims paternity of the black swan. Siegfried realizes with horror what he has done. He runs off stage to go find Odette, end of act three. We've got another intermission here. Maybe for this one you just want to stand up in the aisle rather than trying to jimmy your way up to the bar. Or you could amuse yourself by strolling past the standing room banister aisle at the back of the orchestra section where the super fans and students have lulled through three acts. Walk slowly and you'll catch them showing off their insider knowledge by using the abbreviated versions of our first names or debating the merits of various casts. Is it just me or Sandra looking a little tired tonight? Of course, it's been a very heavy season for him. Emmy, last Saturday, she freaking nailed it. I was like, you better work, girl. Work it out. <laughs> now settle in because Act 4 is very tragic and moving. A distraught Siegfried returns to the lake to explain the whole clusterfuck to a broken-hearted Odette. The Swan Corps weaves in and out. Von Rothbart shows up to polish off the curse and condemn Odette and all the rest of the girls to lives as waterfowl. Odette decides to kill herself. Siegfried, who refuses to be separated from his true love, swears he will join her. The two of them die together, the lights indicating that they drown themselves in the lake, clasping each other. This act of love is so powerful that it kills von Rothbart and frees all the swans, and we end on a final image of Siegfried and Odette locked together, their souls entwined for all eternity against the backdrop of a rising sun, and that's Swan Lake. Just like the movies. <laughs> so, um, so I'm just going to read one other thing. And um, uh, so Gwen, uh, Kate, our ballet dancer that we just heard from, her younger sister Gwen has, has uh, also been in the company with Kate for pretty much their whole careers. Um, and they've uh, for the most time shared an apartment. It's a very close relationship. And at the beginning of the novel, Gwen, the younger sister, has had a nervous breakdown and, and gone home. And throughout the course of the book, Kate uh, tries to uh, unravel this relationship that she's had with her sister, which is very complicated. And uh, in trying to, this isn't the first time that Gwen has kind of had a breakdown. There's been clues along the way. And so one of the things Kate is trying to do is trying to figure out where things went wrong or when things started to go wrong. Uh, so this is a moment that she's remembering. When, when, um, uh, when they all lived together, they li there were three of them, Kate, her best friend Mara, and the younger sister Gwen. So this is describing what happened during that first year when they were all living together, basically young teenagers. Um, <clears throat> In life, most beginnings are so quiet, you don't even know that they are happening. Suddenly, you're in the middle of things as if there were no beginning at all. Maybe you'll try to retrace your steps, but it's a useless endeavor because you're always going to miss the essential initial clue. You might say, oh, here is where it all began, but you're always going to be too late. One thing, the mouse. We all saw it one night in the kitchen, and we all screamed and jumped on chairs like cartoon housewives. Then there was a big debate over what to do, and we ended up getting one of those humane traps because none of us was prepared to deal with some sort of mouse carcass or chewed off leg or something. The guy at the hardware store gave us a rough time about the stupidity of releasing a mouse into our rodent-choked city, but we held firm. The trap was a simple little boxcar-like thing, weighted so that the door would shut on our unsuspecting guest once he had wandered in to grab his cheese. We had to upgrade the bait twice. 
in New York City, even vermin have aspirations. <laughs> Little bastard ended up with Roquefort. <laughs> but lo and behold, one day we all trooped in from doing laundry and the trap door was down on the cage and the thing was rattling, sliding a bit over the floor, again with the screaming and the leaping onto chairs. <laughs> Mara and I just started laughing hysterically, arguing over who was going to take it downstairs. Pick it up. No, you pick it up. I don't want to touch it. Well, I'm not touching it. I started to pick it up, but my hands were shaking and I dropped it. Mara screamed. I screamed. The mouse screamed. And that's when Mara and I noticed Gwen. She was cowering in the corner of our apartment and, like, clawing the wall. Literally standing with her face to the wall and s scraping it and sort of squealing, like she was the one in the trap. Oh my God, stop, Mara said. Gwen, stop, that's so creepy. Mara was still sort of laughing. She thought Gwen was being funny. I knew it wasn't Gwen's sense of humor to do something like that, but it was so outlandish and over the top that I was laughing too. Oh my God, she's freaking out, I shouted to Mara. Quick, help me pick this thing up. But we were both sort of transfixed by Gwen. It almost seemed as if she was pretending, but she didn't stop. You know how in sci-fi movies a robot might malfunction and start sparking off electricity or repeating system failure, repeat system failure while it runs itself into a wall? That's what it looked like, like a gizmo inside Gwen had busted. Wait, is she for real, Mara asked me. Gwen, Gwen, calm down, it's just a mouse. Gwen, stop it, I said, but she didn't. Kate, Mara looked at me. Let's take the mouse down, I said. Gwen, we are taking the mouse away, okay? We'll be right back. It's fine. I found the dustpan and slid it under the trap and turned with it to the door. Mara was trying to put her hand on Gwen's back, back, but Gwen crouched down and covered her head with her hands. She wasn't screaming exactly because her mouth was closed and the sound was coming out of her nose. Gwen, stop it, I shouted. Don't yell at her, Mara shouted. Gwen started beating her head against the wall. Oh my God, said Mara. Oh my God, Kate, you have to stop her. Fuck, I yelled. Open up the fucking window. The window of the living room opens onto a fire escape, so you have to unlatch the door with the bars first and swing that open. Mara did this, and I crawled out the window, holding the dustpan in front of me. This apartment is on the fourth floor, the back of the building. Below us are the trash cans and a locked storage unit that belongs to the building's superintendent. I threw the trap with the panicked mouse still freaking out inside it into the alleyway as hard as I could. Actually, I served it overhand like a tennis ball. It smacked against the storage unit and broke apart. I was already crawling back inside. Mara was standing in the living room with the phone in her hands. Gwen was still mewling in the corner and bumping her head against the wall. I think we should call someone, Mara whispered. I went over to the corner and crouched down next to Gwen. You want me to call mom and dad, I asked her. I put my hand between the wall and her head. Is that what you want? Because if you don't stop right now, then I'm calling them. Well, she heard that all right. She quieted down instantly. Kate, seriously, Mara said. No, it's okay, I said. She's fine. I patted her back for a while, and Mara came over and sat with us, and we both said things like, talk to us, and the mouse is gone, and we were scared too. Eventually, Gwen unfurled herself and went into the bathroom and shut the door, and we heard the water turning on. Should we let her do that, Mara whispered. I'm just going to take a bath, Gwen called through the door, and then after a moment, sorry. Mara and I had both started smoking that year, although we hid it from Gwen. We stared at the bathroom door for a moment and then at each other. Mara mimed taking a drag, I nodded. We crawled out onto the fire escape and mostly shut the window. We lit cigarettes and peered down into the alley, but it was getting dark and we couldn't see anything. We should get a cat, I said. 
There are things you do when you are a teenager, or a dancer, or just a girl, I guess. You cut your food up in special ways, or you cut yourself. You pretend that there is an invisible audience watching you all the time, and you do things to impress them. You steal things, or tell lies, or speak to strangers in a Russian accent. <laughs> you have sex with someone you love, or someone who gets you really drunk. You lie to your parents, your boyfriend, yourself, your therapist. You get up, you take class, you rehearse, you perform, you go to bed. How do you decide which of these things are truly crazy and which are just being alive? You buy a humane trap and you end up killing the thing anyway. Thank you so much for coming. I really, I really appreciate it. Like, I, I really appreciate it. You could, you could do medium to horrible things to me in the next year, and I'll totally forgive you because I'll, I'll be thinking they came to my reading at Skylight. That's cool. Um, do we have a Q and A? Does anybody have any questions before we, before we move the table out for signing? Yes. Did you uh, disguise any real people to? Um to save yourself embarrassment in this book? Uh, you, I assume you changed name, but did you, are there people that are going to recognize themselves? Um, I, people don't usually recognize themselves, even when it's really, um, like in my last book, I had a, like so close to an ex-boyfriend's name, he didn't get it. Um, the I, it, I gave the book to my mom, and I was really nervous thinking that the mom, there's a Midwestern mom of these two sisters that does things similar to what my own mother does. I was like, uh, you know, it's just fiction, mom, and made it all up and everything. And she didn't get that, but she, she refers to Kate as me. <laughs> and like the next day, I gave her the book, and the next morning she was like, I'm reading your book. It's it's very good. And I said, "What's happening?" She goes, "Well, you just got a really good part." <laughs> so I haven't. I mean, there are some compilations of people, but I don't think anyone's gonna come after me. Do dancers read? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and write books, actually. <laughs> and read your books. Joke. <laughs> a little touchy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, what is the next book? I, I think you have another book coming out. Is there another book? In yeah. Well, um, <laughs> as it happens, it's so funny you should ask. Uh, Chris Lynch, whom you met earlier in the evening in the Amuse Bouche Roll, uh, we wrote a book together. And uh, it comes out, we thought it came out next January. It's actually coming out in November. Uh, it's called City of Dark Magic. And it's, um, it's a caper. <laughs> it takes place in Prague and has um, all kind of, basically everything you could think of is in this book. And so we'll be back, yeah, y'all be back here in a couple months. <laughs> Remember where you parked. <laughs> um, Yes. I, I was wondering, is there like a creative connection between dancing and, and writing? Uh, there's, there should be more, and maybe there is more for it. It, it seems like, well, uh, too, I mean, 
there's such different things. Like it's so ballet, dancing, so physical, and you know, writing is it's not as much. Um, uh, so the, the approaches don't really match up really well. But then I found like uh, some really helpful things from being a dancer translate really well to being a writer, like as a dancer, no one starts a career in dance thinking that they're going to make any money um, or have any job security. That's, you just, that's just not one of the things you ever expect for yourself. So, uh, so it's completely off your radar. So great for being a fiction writer. Um, really used to, I'm like, rolls of change are pouring in. I'm so happy. Um, uh, so there should be more of a discipline thing, but I, I don't know. There, I mean, maybe there are some like performance aspects of it that kind of, or that you're, you know, you're thinking of things um, musically, maybe. Um, you maybe like um, as you get in a role as a dancer, perhaps maybe you get in a role as a character. Yeah, although I think more so like with actors for writing, because the way dancers approach roles are kind of it's different. It, there's more artifice in ballet. Um, but actually, this is the thing Kate talks about late, actually in that first chapter, is that you don't really think of your character. It, she dances the Polish princess. That's one of her roles in Swan Lake. And she's like, I've never thought of her as like a person, <laughs> like an actual person. She's representative of something, but I don't think of her like daily life, the way an actor would think about their character's daily life. So... Yes. Sorry, one more. Yeah. What do you think about the fact that this year there's no Pulitzer Prize for fiction? God, wasn't that stupid? <laughs> that seemed awful. Seriously? I mean, I was just flabbergasted by that. I don't know. I, I imagine there was some kind of weird internal debate in the committee, like people couldn't decide. And so in the end, people had to throw up their hands. But I thought it was quite sad. I mean, there. There's so few little moments like that for writers. I mean, it's not a red carpet world, and so it's one good way to get people excited about books and promote someone, and they, they totally dropped the ball. I thought it was kind of pathetic. Whoever those people are. <laughs> yeah, bastards, unknown bastards. Um, okay. Thank you. Yeah. I always like to know what um, uh, writers yourself are, are into at the moment? Like, is there something that you're into right now, whether it's a television show or a book or a song? Um, yeah, we just, um, I'm in this very cool book club, and we just finished reading the Patrick Melrose novels, which are so good, and if you haven't read them, you should read them really good. Um, uh, I'm doing research for uh, the follow-up to the Crazy Caper Prague novel, so there's more reading about alchemy and Beethoven and Vienna. I'll give you a clue as to how things are going in the caper world. And then uh, my own research for, for another novel. Um, and then uh, I'm loving that show Girls on HBO. So good, right? Um, and I'm still ha I'm hanging in there with Game of Thrones, yeah, even though, um, you, know, you're, you know, you're in it for the furs and the, and the, and the dragons and the, all the bent over sex. Everybody has furs and dragons. So it's like acceptable porn. Appreciate that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was, I'm constantly feeling like I'm kind of out of it. I'm not having enough time 
you know, to, but this is the time for me to be working, so. So it's good. So thank you for coming out because I don't get to see you all often enough. Thank you, Skylight. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.